Well, welcome, church family. Let's respond with the resurrection of Christ.
Good morning, happy Easter, and welcome to Woodside. Uh, we're so happy that you're with us this morning. I don't know what your faith background is, but there is a long-standing church tradition that when somebody looks at you and says, he is risen, that you would look back at them and say, he is risen indeed. That's right. So let's try this this morning. You ready? I'm going to start. You respond. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Now, will you turn to someone near you and try that with them? Wonderful. I'm going to read for us the biblical account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay.
God. You're alive, you're breathing, you're moving right here, right now. Thank you for doing what only you can do. Let's see that, what he did, what he's done. You took all my shame and you left it in the grave. We're forgiven, we're forgiven. Thank you. The work forever done, holy by the blood, it is finished. Yes, it is finished. Jesus, thank you, Lord. Won't you reflect on our King with me, King Jesus? Would you see his hands? Would you see his feet, his side, the areas that were pierced for our transgressions, for our sins, Lord? done in our lives, God, taking it all upon yourself, being the perfect sacrifice, may we respond to you, to that truth, who you are and what you've done in our lives, God.
Christ our King. Your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. Final breath upon the cross is now alive me. Your name, your name is victory. No praise will rise to Christ our King. Your name. Your name, your name. 
risen. You may be seated. We are thrilled that you're here to worship with us on Easter Sunday morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My name is Lauren Frith. I'm the director of life groups here at the church. If you've been coming for years, welcome back. If this is your very first time, we want to extend a very special welcome to you. We'd love to connect with you. So there's a QR code on the seat back in front of you. Feel free to scan that and connect with us that way. Let us know you were here. Um, tell us how you want to get involved, how we can serve you. If you've been coming for a while, uh, we would love to connect you to a place that you can serve here at the church. We'd love to connect you with a life group if you haven't gotten connected with a life group yet. Uh, if you're joining us online this morning, welcome. We extend a very special welcome to you, and we'd ask that you drop a comment in the uh, comment field at the bottom so that we can connect with you that way. Well, spring has sprung. Thank you, Lord. But you know what? Here at Woodside, we're actually already thinking about the summer because we have a lot of really exciting things coming up for our kids and our students in particular. One opportunity I want to tell you about today uh, for you to get your kids involved here at Woodside is Flip Camp. Flip Camp is easily one of the most exciting weeks of the year around our church. Uh, we have 150 to 200 kids running throughout the building, doing art projects, playing games, singing songs. Um, it's a wonderful uh, experience for the kids. That will be June 19th through the 22nd this year. It's four days uh, during the week, 9 to noon. We would love to have your preschooler up through the age of entering fifth grade come and participate in this experience. Uh, registration goes live today, so that QR code will work if you want to start that registration process for your kids today. We would love to have them. 
Pastor CT is going to come up now and continue to lead us in worship as we learn more about what the resurrection means for our lives. So will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to receive the word? Father God, thank you for your grand plan in all of history to send your son to redeem us, to pay the price that we couldn't pay, to bring us to a relationship with you, to be your sons, your daughters. Lord, we're, we just delight to celebrate that together this morning. Pray, Lord, that as we listen to your, the teaching of your word, that your Holy Spirit would do a deep work in our hearts. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. It's good to worship with you all this morning. Look forward to continue to worship together as we open the scriptures in just a few moments. If we haven't met, my name is C.T. Eldridge, one of the pastors here, and happy Easter. Um, what a joy. My first Easter worshiping with you guys here at Royal Oak, and so I have broken out my pastel purple, the only time I will all year. Um, but it is worthy of such a day, and so many of you guys look really sharp. Uh, grateful to, to have you all with us this morning, regardless how you're dressed. Um, <clears throat> we uh, are going to continue to worship the Lord as we, as we continue our sermon series this morning on the Apostles' Creed. Um, much of what I'm going to say today about the resurrection assumes that it is historically true. Um, so I'm not going to get into like a lot of uh, apologetic questions, sometimes we call them, uh, questions of unbelief. Um, so one of the things we did was buy a bunch of these books. They're called more, it's called More Than a Carpenter um, by a Christian apologist and scholar. His name's Josh McDowell. The book's called More Than a Carpenter. And through this book, he goes through different questions related to Christianity and science. How do we know the Bible's true? How do we know the resurrection really happened? is one of the chapters as well. So if you have some of those questions or you know someone who does, um, please feel free to grab one on your way out. They're on us. Um, they're not really expensive, so you know, don't feel bad taking one or even two if you know someone who would read it. I will say, uh, we ordered 250 of these and the 830 service, which was supposed to be a little smaller, took all but about 40. So um, when you walk out on the way out, um, you know, do commit in your heart that if you take one, you will read it, or you will force whoever you give it to to read it, um, because there's not many, but please do take them, and uh, who cares about the 1130 people? <clears throat> may just have to tell them about it, you know? Uh, anyway, um, okay, so the Apostles' Creed sermon series, we are working our way through this ancient statement of faith. Normally, we do not do this. In fact, this is the only time I'm aware of that we've done anything like this. Normally what we do for our sermon series is walk through a book of the Bible, start to finish. Or if not an entire book, at least a chunk of a book of the Bible. We'll go straight through it. So for example, last fall, we studied what's referred to as the Olivet Discourse, John chapters 13 through 16. We started in John chapter 13, verse 1, went all the way through the end of John chapter 16. Just section by section, working our way through Jesus' teaching to the disciples. That's normally what we do for a sermon series. This series, we're doing something a little different. Um, we're looking at this historic statement of faith, often referred to as the Apostles' Creed. And this statement is really helpful because it gives a concise, clear, and powerful description of the essentials of Christian belief. And so that's why we've titled this series Essentials, Why Truth Matters. The Apostle, the Apostle, uh, the Apostles' Creed um, is 
is extra-biblical in one sense. The Apostles' Creed isn't found directly in Scripture, but it is a biblical creed. It is reflective of biblical truth in a very concise way. So we're working our way through this creed. Um, we talked about belief in God. We talked about belief in God the Father. We began to talk about the person of Jesus, and no surprise, now we are continuing in the statements section on the work of Jesus, specifically his resurrection. We did plan this out. We did know, you know, this Sunday fell when it did. So uh, in order to show how what the creed says is true, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. The Apostle Paul here is writing to the church in Corinth, and apparently they had a lot of questions about the resurrection. Apparently they had a lot of mistaken beliefs about the resurrection. And so 1 Corinthians 15 stands as really the longest part of Scripture, at least for Paul's writings, where he really unpacks the truth and significance of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So let's read the Apostles' Creed together, and then we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. Let's read. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God the Father who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This changes everything. For my grandfather, it was December 7th, 1941. For some time, the Second World War had raged in Europe and in the Pacific Islands, but that December, the fighting reached 
American soil when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. 2,400 Americans were killed, another 1,100 were injured, several hundred naval ships and aircrafts were destroyed. But equally important to all of that great loss is that President Roosevelt then led the country to take direct action in the war against the Axis powers. And I can imagine both of my grandfathers, 18 years old at the time, listening to the radio as FDR declares war and them saying to themselves, this changes everything. For my father, it was November 22nd, 1963. On that day, one of the most handsome and winsome and promising figures in American history, President John Kennedy, was shot down in cold blood. And even though my dad was not politically aligned with JFK, the shock and sadness were so great that he could still tell you exactly where he was and exactly what he was doing when he heard the news. And I can imagine him saying to himself, this changes everything. For me, and I'm sure for many of you, it was September 11th, 2001. I was 16 years old, sophomore year in high school, random Tuesday morning, Principal Kelly called the entire school to the auditorium, and through tears, he shared the news with us that terrorists had flown two separate airplanes into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. Up until that point, I could not have told you what the World Trade Center was. I was also totally ignorant of Islam, and I was completely unaware of the horrors of war. So glued to the TV screens like we were for days on end, I'm sure at some point I uttered the phrase, this changes everything. Because there are certain historical events that have such impact, and they are so significant for our lives that we can't help but think nothing will ever be the same going forward. My world, my life, my story will forever be shaped by this momentous moment. And friends, the daring and bold claim of Christianity is that the resurrection of Jesus is the main event of all time. There is no more history-shaping, world-altering event than the resurrection of Christ Jesus. This changes everything for us. But as we look closer at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, we want to get specific. What does Jesus' victory mean for us? When Pearl Harbor happened, the wartime effort then increased massively. When JFK was assassinated, a major political succession then took place. When 9-11 happened, security measures and intelligence operations then shifted in a major way. But what happens when Jesus rose from the grave. What does this now mean, this historic event? First, we're gonna see through the apostles' writing that Jesus' victory means all believers will be made alive. Jesus' victory means all believers will be made alive. So looking back at verse 20, the apostle starts off this section saying, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so let's ask two questions coming out of this one verse. First, 
what does Paul mean by those who have fallen asleep? And secondly, what is this whole idea about first fruits? Okay, so first, those who have fallen asleep, what does this mean? Those who have fallen asleep is a common way that Christians referred to other Christians who were dead. So if you had relatives or friends who are dead, and they also were believers in Jesus, then you might not simply say they're dead, you might say they've fallen asleep. And there was a really important reason why Christians would refer to other dead Christians as asleep and not simply dead, and it was this. If you are dead, the assumption is that you are going to stay, what? Dead. You are going to lie down in your coffin, and you are going to stay in your coffin. But if you're asleep, the assumption is that you are going to what? You're going to wake up. You're going to rise. So it was this simple practice of referring to their fellow dead Christians as asleep, not merely dead, that captured their hope of future resurrection, of a future waking up to a new life. And Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what is this first fruits thing about? Well, first fruits is an agriculture term that designates the first portion of a crop to grow. And this initial part of the crop was very significant, very special. Oftentimes it was sacrificed to the Lord even. And the reason this first part of the crop was special was not because it was like inherently better than the other crops or like tasted better or whatever. The reason the first fruits was important was that it was a sign. Harvest is coming. Harvest is coming. This is only the first. This is only the beginning. There is a dozen silos worth of fruit on the way. And Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of Christ. For those who have fallen asleep, he is only the first fruits of those who will soon be raised with him and awakened to new life. He's not the only one who will be raised. He's only the first fruits. There is a harvest of dead bodies that will be raised, awakened to new resurrection life. So this is kind of a silly illustration, but maybe something like this happens in your family or, or did happen in your family growing up. But in my family right now, in my house right now, this is the morning time situation. So my wife does not have an alarm clock, and my children do not have an alarm clock, and that is because I am their alarm clock. So I am pretty introverted, need some alone time before the day starts, so I wake up 5.15 a.m., but eventually, about 7 a.m., the amount that I'm stirring around, making coffee, taking a shower, getting dressed it starts to wake people up. Or if not, I'll eventually just turn the light on for them. But on the rare occasion that I don't wake up, on the very rare occasion that I don't get up past 7, past 7.30, guess what? Nobody else gets up either. I stay down, they stay down. 
The apostle says it's the same thing with the Lord Jesus. If he is dead, we are dead. But if he's alive, then he is just the first fruits, and there is an incoming harvest of resurrected believers who will one day be woken up to renewed eternal life. So you see, what the apostle wants for the Corinthian Christians is assurance in the face of death. What the apostle wants for Corinthian Christians is assurance in the face of death. And you see, this is what makes Christianity different from every other religion and every other philosophy of life. In every other religion, you gaining assurance in the face of death is up to you. You got to follow the religion's rules. You got to attend mass enough. You got to give enough money. You got to do enough good. And then you can gain assurance on your own. But the thing is, deep in the back of our conscience, we know we can never do enough. We can never tip the scale enough on our own to give ourselves the kind of assurance that our hearts really long for. The apostle knows that. And so he wants them, he wants us to have assurance in the face of death, not because of what we can do, but because of what Christ has done and that he is the first fruits of a resurrection to come when the full harvest will eventually follow in his wake. And so I got to ask you, what is your hope in life and in death? Is your hope that you've been a good person, or at least you've tried to be? Is your hope that you've been a religious person? Is your hope that you've made a lot of money or made things better for your kids? Is your hope that you've accomplished a lot in school or in work? Well, those things are fine and good. But the fact remains for you that you are going to die, and you are going to stay dead. And whatever earthly hope you hung on to is going to be swept into the ash heap of eternity. And so the apostle here calls us to have a solid assurance as we go through life and as we face death. Not the kind of assurance that money or family or morality can give us. He wants us to have the assurance that our graves will one day be just as empty as Jesus' grave. Just as I am the first fruits of the Eldridge family awakening every morning, Christ is the first fruits of a future resurrection for all who belong to him. Do you have that assured hope? Or are you clutching to a hope that's much more flimsy? This is how Jesus' resurrection changes everything. It means that all believers will be made alive. And secondly, it means that all his enemies will be defeated. Through his resurrection, all his enemies will be defeated. So Paul has just finished referencing this end-time resurrection of believers. And then he continues this timeline of events, verse 24. After the resurrection of believers, then comes the end. When Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus is not only going to deliver his people from death, he is going to destroy death altogether. Death is the last enemy, he says. But he also mentions every ruler and authority and power who will be destroyed and subjected to Christ's rule. And this is a reference to the evil, demonic, spiritual influences in the world, the powers and rulers of darkness. Satan and his minions, they too, along with death, will be destroyed. They will all be under the feet of King Jesus as he takes his throne. You know, imagine when you become sick and visit the doctor. Imagine the difference between the doctor telling you, you know, you're really sick, but we've got some means to comfort you. Imagine the difference between him saying that and saying, we've got the means to cure you. Like, I don't want to just be comforted of my sickness. I want to be cured of my sickness. Doctor, I don't want you to just make this sickness not feel as bad as it could. I want you to make this completely go away, please. There's a big difference between mere comfort and total healing. The apostle is saying here that Jesus' resurrection does not mean we're simply comforted in death, but through his resurrection, we will be cured of death because as an enemy, death will be completely eradicated. So I want to ask you, what is your view of death? What is your evaluation of death? Because my fear is that we don't face up to the horror of death like we should. Instead of saying someone died, we soften it. We say they passed away. Instead of calling it a funeral, we soften it. We call it a celebration of life. Instead of visiting our aging, dying relatives as often as we should in the nursing home or wherever, we just kind of ignore it or block it out. I know this happens because I used to work in a nursing home. So my concern is that in all these little ways, we sort of play down and avoid how truly awful death is. But death is, as the apostle says here, an enemy, the last enemy, the final boss for you video game players out there. Death is not some neutral experience. Death is not something we can romanticize into this blissful situation. If you don't think so, go work in a skilled nursing facility. There's some amazing things that happen there. There are some wonderful people who work there, but you will see the agony of death. And you will see that not only do we need to be raised from the dead, but we need death to die. And that's exactly what happened at the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what will happen when he returns death will be destroyed. Jesus' resurrection changes everything because all believers will be made alive, all his enemies will be defeated, and finally, all things on heaven and earth will be reconciled to him. Through the resurrection of Jesus, all things will be reconciled to God. So look at the last two verses of our passage, verses 27 and 28. They are a mouthful, but here we go. God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, 
it is plain that God is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to God who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. So Paul here is describing the dynamic between God the Father and God the Son. He says that God put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, except, of course, for the Father himself. He's still the Father and Jesus is still the Son. And Jesus acted in submission to the Father, carrying out this plan of redemption and reconciliation. And with this plan now complete, with this mission now accomplished, verse 28 says, Jesus will once more be subjected to God who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. Listen to how New Testament scholar Gordon Fee interprets this verse, especially that last phrase so that God may be all in all. Fee says this, quote, Most likely, Paul here intends that at the time of the resurrection of the dead, when through Christ the final enemy of the redeemed has been subdued, then the will of the one and only God will be supreme in every quarter and in every way. God will be all in all. In Paul's view, this consummation of redemption includes the whole sphere of creation. Nothing lies outside God's redemptive purposes in Christ, in whom all things will finally be united. Therefore, at the death of death, the final rupture in the universe will be healed, and God alone will rule over all things, banishing those who have rejected the divine offer of life and lovingly governing all those who, by grace, entered into God's rest. In other words, God is going to make it on earth as it is in heaven. The redemption Jesus accomplishes is not merely to save our souls. The redemption Jesus accomplishes is not merely meant to save the immaterial part of who we are. No, Jesus is going to redeem the entire cosmos. God will be all in all and there will be a new heavens and a new earth as the Apostle John says in the Revelation. Now, you may be saying to yourself, CT, this is crazy. This Christian vision of heaven, this paradise and a redeemed world and no more death, this is a pipe dream, right? This is wishful thinking, right? Well, if you have that skepticism, I want you to know that it's all welcome here. Your doubts, your questions, it is all welcome here. And thank you for being here. But I do want to encourage you to consider this. It's an insight from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. It's on the chapter titled Hope, which is really a chapter on heaven. And Lewis says this, quote, If most people, if most people had really learned to look into their hearts, they would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give that thing to you, but the things of this world never quite keep their promise. So, if I find myself 
with the desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Because creatures were not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. For example, a baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. And so if I find myself with a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then perhaps the most probable explanation is that I was not made for this world. I was made for another world. And friends, the claim of the gospel is that Jesus is ushering in this new world. It was begun on the first Easter with his resurrection from the grave, and it has continued with the outpouring of his spirit and the spread of the gospel, and it will be consummated and completed at the end of the ages when he makes all things new, and God will be all in all. You think about this, we have desires that cannot be satisfied apart from that new world. So as Lewis says, the most probable explanation is that that new world exists. For example, we have desires for justice. We have desires for justice that will not be fulfilled until Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. Our longings for justice will always be incomplete. Even if our court system gets it right, they can never fully satisfy our longing for wrong to be made right. But Jesus will. We have desires for community. We have desires for community and unity across the nations. How many times have world leaders written treaties? How many times have we created the United Nations, and how united are they really? We have longings for community that will not be returned until every tribe and tongue and nation gather around the Lamb on the throne and declare His praise with one voice. That desire for peace and community will not happen until the end. We have desires for peace. We have desires for reconciliation with our enemies. And those longings are unsatisfied until the day when the lion lays down with the lamb, when the child plays over the cobra's den in the heavens, in the new heavens and the new earth. We have desires for life. We have desires for human flourishing that will not be, that will not be fulfilled until death is destroyed and all things are put under Jesus' feet. So my skeptical friend, perhaps this talk of the new world and heaven on earth is not so crazy after all. And I encourage you to continue to consider the claims of Jesus. Like I said, take one of Josh McDowell's books, More Than a Carpenter, and maybe you'll find out that there is more to Jesus and there is more to the gospel than you once thought. Take one of those books, or also we would love to see you again. We meet here every Sunday, every Lord's Day, 9 and 11 a.m. We open God's Word. We sing God's praises. And we also have these smaller groups. We call them life groups. Lauren mentioned them. We'd love to help you get plugged into community and friendship that is centered on Jesus. 
When Pearl Harbor was bombed, both of my granddads soon ended up in the military and deployed for service. Everything changed for them from that point forward. When JFK was murdered as a young man, my dad would never see the world again. It was a milestone when he realized in a powerful way that all is not right in the world. And similarly, in, uh, when 9-11 happened, my friends and I, we lost our innocence in a sense because we saw evil in a whole new way. But as earth-shattering as those occasions were, nothing rivals the significance and world-altering power of Jesus' resurrection. And so I call on you right now, receive the assurance of being made alive because Jesus has gone before us as the first fruits of a huge harvest resurrection to come. Receive that assurance. And I call on you right now, receive the confidence. Receive the confidence of facing death because Jesus' resurrection defeats our last enemy. And I call on you right now, receive the hope Receive the hope of a new world because eventually God will be all in all and the resurrection of Christ will have its full redeeming effect on the entire universe. That assurance, that confidence, that hope can be yours right now by putting your trust in Jesus and calling upon him as the Lord of your life. After the service is over, we're going to have some people up here who would love to pray with you, love to hear your questions. Please come forward and speak with them. They'll have lanyards on. Also, please reach out to one of us at the Connect Desk. We would love to help you take whatever steps God has in front of you to continue to pursue Jesus and, and ask questions. We would love to serve you in that way. We just want to encourage you to pursue him and give your life to him. I pray it would be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together, and I'll pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, God, that you have turned our mourning to dancing. And God, we thank you that the hope of Christ has dawned on our broken world. We thank you, God, that as we look forward, there is light in the end. Father, we thank you that this is the good news. We can be made alive. We can live with hope. We can die with assurance because Christ has gone before us through the grave and out. God, thank you for this joyous occasion. Thank you for this glad day that we get to celebrate as a faith family. Father in heaven, for any who are here, do not know you, 
who have not surrendered their lives to you, we pray for them, God. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would continue to pursue them. We pray that you, the hound of heaven, would track them down, prick their hearts, speak to their consciences, loosen their grip, God, on their sin, on their shame, on their fear. We come before them, we come before you with them now in a posture of surrender and humility. We are needy, but you are provider. We are sinful, but you are the forgiving God. And so we continue to give you all praise with one voice in Jesus' name, amen. song we see.
of it. You're the son of men. You're the lion of Judah. You're the risen lamb. You're the sick and tired of you to lead us home. You are Yahweh's glory, now revealed in flesh and bone. You are ocean so much for being with us here today. Remember that we have individuals who are ready and willing to pray with you down in the front. I'm going to read a blessing over us as we go our separate ways this Easter from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Happy Easter. Amen.